ABC. A shirt, a bib and a hat. Yep. Good yeah. Remember, keep the sleeve, you can crop. Flashback to the start of 2023 when World Pride came down under. The celebration of difference, the celebration of love, um, acceptance, um, freedom to be yourself. Newcastle Pride through a lively, family-friendly outdoor parade celebrating local LGBTQIA plus community. It was joyful and jubilant, full of glitter and pride. We just want to make uh, a better society for all, a society that welcomes, celebrates and includes uh, every single person um, and makes sure that we celebrate the colour and diversity in our society. Going to these events, it's easy to forget the history of how queer people were treated and how recently it was that being gay was criminalised. Hey, I'm Laurie Dixon. Today on the Newcastle Hunter Catch-Up, we're looking into an urban legend about being gay in Newcastle in the 1950s. See, a lot of people, a lot of gay bisexual men who were married, but they never used to go out or anything like that. They lived this closeted life. And how different life was back then for queer people. John, if you just wanted to start by saying your full name and how you would introduce yourself, would you say author? No. What would you say? How would you introduce yourself? <laughs> um, um, I'm an oral historian. Yeah. Oral historian. That's yeah. It. That's yeah, it. yeah, Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> John Witt has been telling stories of Australia's queer history for the past 23 years. I helped set up the Pride History Group down there and recorded about apparently 70 or 80 interviews. When he moved into the area, he began volunteering, taking oral histories with the Hunter Rainbow History Group. When I moved to Newcastle, um, I joined a group called COMAG. It's basically a group for older men, gay men. One of the people he wanted to talk to was a bit of a local legend, Kevin Coleman. I've, I, well, I heard of Kevin Coleman, who's a, a famous uh, figure, and um, the person who coordinates the group knew Kevin I thought, this is fantastic. So I, I asked for uh, details and I contacted Kevin, who lived up at Port Macquarie. And I have a sister who lives in Warhope, so she drove me over to Port Macquarie with, a, with Kerry Bashford, who's also a member of the um, Hunter Rainbow History Group. My life's an open book, really, <laughs> as you can tell by the... <laughs> Jim Mayfer said, do you want to use your real name or you can use you know, another name? But... I said, no. I said, I know my own heart. Keith would like this story to be told. Oh, good. So that's when I, I that his name was Keith Robinson yeah. and my name is Kevin Coleman. Yeah. Okay. And I'm not ashamed of what I am or anything yeah. like that, you know, so. Yeah. But who great. cares at my age? <laughs> Kevin was involved in the local community along with his partner, Keith Robinson. He used to pick me up somewhere and we'd go to a... Adamstown Park, something like that, or we, or he knew other people, he knew other gay guys there, which I didn't have a clue, you know. So or we used to go to gay guys' place and all this and all that, you know. But uh, mm. the gay setup was more or less going to people's homes and that, except this once a month at the National Park Ladies Bowling Club, yeah. where we used to have these dances. Yeah. And okay. that's where we used to meet. But other than that, there was no such thing as parties, we'd, anything like that. Uh, we had uh, a few friends, uh, 
that we used to visit and use their house, you know. Yeah. But um, we never used to see much of that, you know, because Keith had to be careful who he associated and who he was seen with. Mm. That's one thing he had to be very careful. Keith owned a menswear store in Hunter Street that would stock the latest fashions and caused a bit of a stir. Yeah, he's a successful businessman and uh, he knew a lot of other men in those days. Yeah. You know, it's businessmen. Mm. And he just had to be careful. Yeah. And we couldn't be seen. You know, of course, there was such a difference in our age. Yeah. And there was a lot of fear as well. Today, you know, it wouldn't matter. No. But those days in the 50s, you know, in Newcastle, yeah. you had to be very careful mm. because Newcastle wasn't the size that it is today. Yeah. Attitude. Mm. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. Kevin and Keith were at the centre of an event that became an urban myth around town, the Yellow Socks Affair. There was a, a social group sort of centred around, um, well, Keith Robinson moved to the district and set up a men's shop in Hunter Street. And, it, and around about that time, we, we hear that there was um, regular dances at the Nas Women's National Park Bowling Club, mm. which was a, a community venue, but they would hold a, a monthly dance there mm. and have drag. And this is in 1949, 50, 51. So it's, it was quite an early gay event. And that network was a network of friends who had sexual relations with each other, of course, and romances happened and... Well, the story I heard, how it started, these two gay guys uh, went to Sydney for a weekend mm. and they decided to go over to, on the Manly Ferry. They met these two soldiers on the ferry. Yeah. And apparently one of the soldiers and one of the gay guys clicked and they had this thing going. And they used to write letters to each other. Yeah. Anyhow, what happened, the mother of this particular guy was going through his clothes to wash them. She found this letter and then she took it to the police. Yeah. Very naive, thought she, the police would scare him, you know. That's what she thought. Well, it didn't scare They charged the son and also the soldier. Yeah. And this is where it all started. From this social network of gay men, 12 were charged with crimes related to being homosexual, called in the press abominable offences, and Kevin's partner Keith was viewed as the ringleader. It was in the context of sort of post-war clampdown on homosexuality. There were commentators, crazy commentators, who were saying that soldiers returning from the Second World War were turning gay, or had turned gay, and they needed to crack down on gay activities. Wow. And there's also the fear of older men and younger boys. Mm. So in Newcastle, we have soldiers who were in the social group um, with younger but not underage men as lovers. And so when the police got hold of this letter, it was perfect ammunition because it was an ideological war. Funnily enough, started in Newcastle and extended to Sydney. Everybody knew each other and, and that's how they started to get all these names. I even heard the stories that if the police couldn't find something on one of the guys, they'd go to their place of work. Uh, now, what was it? There's a tailor in Newcastle. And this guy'd worked there for many years. He's married. And the police went and told him that he was gay. Mm. 
He lost his job. And he wasn't the only one. At the time, people who were caught and charged would be named and shamed in the local paper. The arrests and the media coverage somehow led to this idea that if you were wearing yellow socks or a yellow tie, you were signalling that you were gay. The yellow socks is really a misnomer, and Kevin's quite adamant to say that no one wore yellow socks in 1951 or 52. I think people were, were, were terrified of being outed um, in those days. And so Keith, he was quite progressive. Because oh. I'm going back to Newcastle in the early 50s, mm. which is a rural working men's town. He used to have this friend. Uh, he used to come up and dress. He was a window dresser. And he used to dress Keith's windows every month. Mm. And when this yellow sock and tie club started, mm. and Keith's name came out in the paper, mm. he was featuring yellow in his windows. Yeah, as you do. So therefore, that started the yellow sock and tie club. It's not entirely clear where this came from, but the rumour stuck. And of course, I've never worn a pair of yellow socks or a yellow tie, and neither has he, mm. you know, because it's a rather, you know, <laughs> colour that uh, a man wouldn't wear. In reality, there was no need for someone to wear any colour tie or socks. Newcastle had a strong gay social scene, one that police would repeatedly crack down on for decades to come. There was sections of the Crimes Act and also in the Vagrancy Act, um, which policed same-sex activity by men. So the Crimes Act covered things like buggery, which are the abominable offence, indecent assault, which could be anything from kissing to uh, other forms of non-penetrative sex, and then uh, the Vagrancy Act about loitering in public places. Kevin and Keith were fearing the police knock on the door, and they knew that other people were opening their mouths and letting out secrets and names. And in the camp world, you never did that. That was one way of protecting yourselves, was that you would never openly say anything which would indicate that you're gay, you're a homosexual camp. Kevin remembers when the vice squad showed up at his work, trying to ask him questions about his relationship with Keith. Keith and myself knew they would get around to us. We used to talk about it, you know. We thought they'd get around to us one day. And we had the story mapped out. It was a Friday afternoon. This will go to the grave with me. This yeah. I'll never forget it. One Friday afternoon, and the clerk came up to me and, and said, the manager wants to see you in his office. I went into the office, and here's these two big burly, obviously detectives. Mr Agnew was a works manager at the time, a lovely man, really, really nice. Anyway, he said to me, Kevin, he said, these two gentlemen want to talk to you. He said, do you want to use my office or what? They said, no, no, we want to take him up to the vice squad rooms. So anyway, he gets up there and they introduced me to the chief of the vice squad. And I had three of them in the room. And of course, they're firing all sorts of questions at me. They said, if you have sex with Keith Robinson, they said, we won't publish your name, but we will publish his name. They knew they weren't going to get anywhere with me. So they said, oh, okay, you know, we're finished. And they took me back to the works manager's office. And as soon as I walked out the door, all this emotion, all this tension of building up in me just came out. I broke down 
and I was crying and I was a mess. And the manager put his arm around me and said, don't you go back to the workshops. He said, you go home. Keith was arrested but got the charges dismissed in Sydney. When he returned to Newcastle, the stigma stuck. He was forced to sell his menswear business in Hunter Street and left town. That trial, it affected Keith financially and personally. He went broke. He had to sell the business Uh, because his business just went, you know, and trial comes up. People didn't want to go to the shop and... Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Yeah. who wants to, you know, shop at a poster shop, you know, sort of thing. Mm. So he, he, he went down to Sydney, and I, because I still served my apprenticeship, mm. and so I stayed in Newcastle, but mm. I used to go down to Sydney quite often. Yeah. Keith was the type of person, uh, he found it hard to take orders. Mm. See, in his menswear store, he was his own boss and all yeah. that, you know. He tried a couple of things, but it didn't work. But he just couldn't accept, you know, yeah. uh, being told what to do. Yeah. And that was his downfall, you know, he couldn't. Yeah. Keith and Kevin stayed together for years and years until Keith eventually died in 1992. Uh, he told me what he wanted to be uh, cremated. I was going... Through, going through some of his books and that, his diary, and I went through it and I found this thing where he'd written uh, to my dearest Kevin. Mm. He says, please, remember me as the way I was, not the way I am, yeah. Mm. And, and yeah, just that. So that was the story. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. It was. The stigma of yellow socks and ties didn't stop Newcastle from becoming a hub for queer people and gay men over the 20th century. With places like Bernie's Bar in Hamilton to the Gateway Hotel in Islington or Piper's Nightclub and known spots like Bray Park. But gay and trans people in Newcastle still face discrimination from all fronts from police harassment and monitoring, all the way through to being outed and potentially facing lethal violence. Currently, there's a special commission of inquiry into LGBTIQ hate crimes, looking at cases from 1970 to 2010. Many of the cases they're looking into are centred around Sydney, but there are some dealing with Newcastle. Around five cases from Newcastle will be scrutinised. So that's five out of, I think, out of the the New South Wales Police Force Parabell. They reviewed 88 cases and they had 23 unsolved cases. So that's that's quite a high proportion if you think that five cases will come from Newcastle. Dr Justin Ellis is a senior lecturer in criminology at the University of Newcastle. So the Special Commission of Inquiry aims to clarify the extent of gay hate bias in unsolved deaths in New South Wales of LGBTIQ victims and that the New South Wales Police Force investigated. So in doing so, the Special Commission of Inquiry is also scrutinising how police investigated those cases. What's happening with it currently at the moment? Yes, so the inquiry has already heard from police, hate crime academics and other experts. The hearings are available online, so there's a real emphasis here on transparency at the inquiry to air a lot of these issues, clarify uh, what has happened and also to encourage the public to keep coming forward to help um, resolve some of these unsolved deaths. There are people John knows who are unwilling to testify. 
for fear even now of repercussions based on how they've been treated in the past. The informant I mentioned earlier, um, he was actually involved in in bringing the press along to the 1977 police blitz in Newcastle. So he has had a a history of actually taking it up to the police. And um, when I suggested that he front the commission, he said that um, no, um, so he's not certain that there will be repercussions, that somebody will, hmm. uh, you know. The fear, I guess, of, I mean, retaliation. I'm sure, retaliation yeah. and, um, you know, I guess every victim in this case um, who comes forward with their story, there hmm. is that big chance that, hmm. um, it, you know, nothing will come from it. Nothing will I come guess. and they'll be outed. Yep. yep. Mm. So they're, they'll be on their own. Mm. Mm. And there are certain cases that haven't been classed as hate or bias crimes, like the murder of Newcastle Morning Herald employee Alan Edge in 1977. But the Special Commission of Inquiry is part of acknowledging the history of how queer people have been treated, a history that goes much further back, even beyond the time of yellow socks. The problem with the yellow socks as a label is that stigma is durable. When we label anything or anyone, then that can generate stigma, it can generate stereotypes. So those things linger, uh, and in my research, what, what we call a hate feedback loop. So if it's a negative label, then that can be amplified at different periods. We're seeing that at the moment, uh, in particular in the United States with criticism of drag time, uh, drag queen story time, literacy, childhood literacy programs. Uh, we've seen that in Western Sydney in recent times with the New South Wales election where a peaceful group of LGBTIQ protesters were attacked uh, and people were throwing bottles and rocks. Times have changed for the better. There are still pockets of hate, but this commission is part of acknowledging and doing justice to a darker history. The whole point is that, yes, we need to move forward, but... Uh, all of those people that were involved in those times are still going to have to live with those experiences. We, we, we can't build a bridge and get over it. It's mm. about settling those things with yourself, your peers, your, your family, so that, um, so that they don't happen again. John has lived through this attitude shift. I mean, there's obviously pockets of resistance. Um, I think the marriage equality bill yeah. was incredible. Um, it happened and there was an incredible groundswell of support. And I think in that context, um, uh, attitudes have changed considerably. There's still time today, as you're listening to this podcast, to get in touch with the Special Commission and to come forward. We'll have a link in the show notes for how you can do that. As for Kevin, he now lives in a retirement community up near Port Macquarie on the mid-north coast. I I spoke to him last night. He's lively um, in a nursing home living life to the best it can at the stage, yeah. Of course, now I'm surrounded by old girls, you know, most of them. But I keep my arm... I get on a lot with them, they're OK, mm. but I keep my arm's length, mm. you know. <laughs> After Keith died, he kept going, living through a groundbreaking 30 years where queer people became accepted and their stories celebrated. And that's, that's sometimes when I look back at the when I was interviewed by the police. Basically, I, I think I'm a fairly strong person. Yeah. Mm. I like it very much. Mm. A good move. I haven't regretted one day. Thanks to the Hunter Rainbow History Group at the University of Newcastle for allowing us to use Kevin Coleman's oral history. 
The Newcastle Hunter Catch-Up is produced on Awabigal Country. It's presented and produced by me, Larise Dixon. It's produced by Toby Hemmings and Michael Black. Our digital producers are Keely Johnson and Cecilia Connell. Executive producers are Blythe Moore and Lucia Hill. If you like the pod, don't forget to subscribe in the ABC Listen app. We'll be back next week with more local stories from around Newcastle and the Hunter Valley. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.